Good morning, good people. My name is Nikki, and I'm your host of the Black Girl Budget Podcast. The Black Girl Budget Podcast has an international audience with listeners from South Africa, Canada, and Jamaica, to name a few. Welcome to season six, where I'm going to talk to a special guest today who is going to talk to us a little bit about college tuition and negotiating our college tuition. Today, we have Dr. Simone Wright-Hammer joining us, and she's a first-generation college graduate with a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in computer engineering from Iowa State University. She has spent the last decade working at various organizations ranging from Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft and startups such as Smart AG to state government and national laboratories. She developed a set of fundamental resources and principles to help students mindfully navigate their degree programs and employment opportunities. Using her business expertise, student and teaching experience, Dr. Wrighthammer demystifies the collegiate processes by closing the information gap. She provides actionable steps to help students maximize their college experiences, find internships, and transform into indispensable employees. Her keynotes and workshops have inspired students and helped them thrive. Her mission is to help 1 million students obtain college degrees and full-time job offers before graduation. Dr. Simone, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Uh, Just excited to get out there and help people maximize their opportunities. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to have you here today because I've had a lot of people ask me about um, college and just the cost of college and really from the standpoint of my children are going to college soon. What do I do financially? Right. Um, But I recently got a chance to speak at Bowie University and the college students there had a lot of great questions. So I love that this is an opportunity for me to dive a little bit deeper because I feel like college students are at this pivotal point where they're making all of these decisions that are really going to affect them for the next decade, if not longer than that. So let's just jump right in. My first question is really just how did you recognize that there is an information gap when it comes to college processes and what made you want to close that information gap? So I first realized that when um, I finished my bachelor's degree, Um, So I finished my bachelor's degree with no student loan debt and actually made a profit off of college. However, I then found out that most of my peers actually had on average like $50,000 in student loan debt. Um, In in which one of them uh, attempted to take their life um, behind the amount of, he had six figures of student loan debt. Um, And that bothered me so much because we were we're close friends that I was like, okay, I can't go through that again. So we're going to have to do something to make some change. Through that, I started trying to understand how they got into this debt. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me that most people don't realize that college is a business. And so I'll give you an analogy and break it down. When you go into Target, and you see a new pop or soda that you want to try, you typically buy it first, try it. If you don't like it, you just don't buy it again. Right. When you go to a university, most people choose a course they want to take and they pay for the course before they even know if it's going to be helpful or if they're going to like that professor. And if they don't like the course, they either change majors or just don't take classes with that professor if they can avoid it. Now, from a structural standpoint, the structure actually looks the same. 
instead of calling a university a corporation, a CEO, a president, they all have HR and legal departments. Yeah. The structure is exactly the same. And then when you get to, if you have a university, universities have colleges like the College of Engineering, the College of Liberal Arts. Within those colleges, there are departments. Well, a corporate structure has divisions. And within those divisions, there are departments. Wow. Structure is the same, but because they changed the high level names, most people missed it. When you understand that college is a business, you can either be a consumer interfacing with the business or a business interfacing with another business. And in order to be qualified as another business interfacing with another business, you have to make a profit or break even. Versus when you think with the consumer mindset, you're like, I'll just take out the student loans and pay it back later. I'm pretty sure I'm making six figures anyway, which unfortunately, most students don't realize that it is not normal to make six figures on an entry level job. Right, right. So that yeah, after good. after realizing that people were missing these analogies um, and that it was a business, I was like, I got to fix this. <laughs> I can't have um, any more colleagues stressed out of student loan debt on the job. Yeah, I love that you make that analogy because I've never thought of it as as breaking it down on a level by level basis, right? So I'm like, okay, I know colleges are a business. They have to make money. They're in they're in the business of making money, regardless of, of how we think of it. Uh, but I've never thought in my mind, like, oh my gosh, the college of, of arts, the college of engineering, those are all different departments like you would in any other uh, company. I, so I love that breakdown because it does help you recognize like, oh shoot, this really is a corporation that I'm just getting my education from. It, my eyes are, are much bigger inside my mind than they are right now. <laughs> I love that analogy. And so with, with your um, business, your goal, your mission is to help 1 million students obtain college degrees and full-time job offers. Um, that's a lot of people. And I love that that's a lot of people because there are a lot of people who are going to college. So how did you decide it was 1 million students that you wanted to help? Um, it's just funny. So I'm an engineer and I like numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me break down how this came about. So there are approximately 45 million um, student loan borrowers, um, most of which are uh, Although a small percentage of those borrowers are minority, Mm -hmm. the Black and Hispanic community actually have majority of the debt. Because on average, Black and Hispanic students take out $7,000 more than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Now, going deeper into that demographic, um, you will learn that uh, approximately 33% or one-third of that demographic default on the loan within 10 years, which means credit score is screwed. No house, no car, and this may even delay people uh, wanting to get married because they don't want to burden their partner with their student loan debt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're really kind of stopping people's lives here. So to me, 1 million is actually a small number when you think about the real number at a grand scheme of things. Yeah. but yeah, so ultimately, I just kept doing the math of the fractions of each population and got down to one million. Gotcha. And I love that you. I love that you actually sat down and did the math. I also obviously love numbers, um, but I think it makes a big difference when you can say a, a million people is a lot of people, but 
relatively speaking, in comparison to 45 million borrowers, it's like not even a, a large percentage of that. Um, but when we talk about how many black and brown people are borrowing, yet yeah, not, you know, a lot of that 45 million are black and brown people, but we do carry a larger amount of debt. I think that also makes a big difference too, especially when you're saying, you know, on average, we're borrowing $7,000 more than other people. When you add interest onto that, over years and years of time, you're you're right. Like it does start to add up. And when you default, that just, it, I feel like it's just always compounding on top of itself and just getting worse and worse. So I, I love that that you've chosen a million, but now I'm like, man, I feel like we should be aiming for, <laughs> for you know, five million. But but I love that that's a that that's a great place um, for you to start because you you've done the math. And so when you've had the opportunity to, for you personally, work at these various organizations, like I said earlier, state government, Microsoft, startup companies, how do you incorporate your personal experiences into providing actionable steps to help those million students? Um, great question. So I am a very self-aware person. I can tell you what my flaws are. Mm -hmm. And so when I do that, most people take, they don't take me seriously. They're like, you're over-exaggerating. And then they figure out like, oh, wow, that's really a problem. Um, when I started doing internships, I realized I had a developmental delay. Mm. I called it out. I literally went into my boss's office and was like, look, these interns over here have this, this, and this. I don't have this. I, I need you to give me these. Right. I experienced a lot of rejection when explicitly asking people to be my mentor. Mm. I could go to them and tell them, I have this issue. I don't know how to fill this gap. Can you mentor me, provide me with feedback and resources? There was multiple reasons why um, I got rejected, most of which being they didn't come from my background, so they didn't understand how to communicate with me, which mm -hmm. was fair. Two, uh, I was a woman in a male-dominated field, and they didn't ever want a situation where this is a harassment. Mm. They feared that greatly. And then the third piece was they didn't understand when they learned it. Wow. So they didn't know how to teach me. Right. To fill the gap. Um, when looking at some of the big companies uh, that try to um, create internship programs for minorities, they fall short. Mm -hmm. A few reasons. One, we're not always taught how to properly deal with authority. Mm -hmm. So when we receive criticism, we may take it as an attack. Um, when it's that person may not be the most gifted at providing uh, constructive feedback and it's not an attack, they're not gonna run up on us in the hallway or you know, out in the parking lot. Um, and then that part of a child's development usually happens between the ages of zero and three. Wow, it's pretty young. And in the minority community, that's usually when you're told things like your child go sit down, <laughs> go be quiet, go outside, right? Yeah. So we're not really taught how to deal with authority. We're taught more like a dictatorship, do what you were told and that's it. Mm -hmm. Which then manifests as an adulthood as an ability to deal with criticism. The other issue I knew I had was I did not understand how to take the bits and pieces of information that I was learning in engineering 
and reconstruct it outside the environment in which it was taught. And then the third thing is I didn't have enough resources to be able to practice this at home on my own because I didn't actually own a computer yet. My major was computer engineering. Oh, wow. That's a big deal. (laughs) So if I wasn't on campus, I was kind of without. Yeah. Recognizing these, I then turned around and started seeing the problem across the board, no matter where I went where there was always this complaint that um, their minority interns are not as developed as everyone else. They're not wrong. Mm. And one of the examples of that is just recently I was at a recruiting event and a student asked me, how do I demonstrate interest in a company? And which I asked him, how do you demonstrate interest when you wanna date someone? And he rattled it off just fine. I was like, it's the same concept, except here's the best part about this. There's just a website you can go look most of this up yeah. versus the, you know, if you're trying to pursue somebody, they probably don't have that on their website. Just, just going to put that caveat out there. Um, and so then he's like, okay, I, I looked at the core values. I understand them. What do I do with this information? It goes back to the issue of not understanding what to do with these bits and pieces and how to organize them towards like a productive means. Mm, gotcha. Wow. I, uh, I love all three of those. Um, and it actually reminds me, I just finished uh, reading Will Smith's book, Will, um, about himself. And um, in it, he talks about this time where I think he was on the set of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And uh, him and a few other people decided to change some of the words to some of the scripts or something. And ultimately, he gets called into like an executive's office. And him and his attorney are sitting down and the executive is like, walking around behind them and kind of like giving them criticism. I think he he was also being rude in a way from from Will's perspective, how he described it. But Will says in that meeting, he thought the executive was going to hit him or attack him and his attorney. So they actually both jump up at some point in the meeting and they start telling him, you need to sit the F down, you need to sit the F down. And so later Will is recounting this and he's like, that was the most insane thing. Like, why would I think that someone was going to physically attack me when they were giving me criticism? We later find out that the executive had just had, you know, back surgery. So sitting down was very uncomfortable for him. And that's why he was standing up. But just those little pieces where, you know, we grow up in certain environments or we grow up in certain ways. And so criticism to us doesn't sound like constructive criticism, right? It does sound like a personal attack on us. And I think the other thing is when you are working with someone who uh, does not know how to provide actual criticism, like you said, but they are providing attacks. So it's almost like you have to find a way to understand, am I being personally attacked or is this an objective criticism that is going to help me be better at my job? And I think that's really important for you to pull out and show people like, what do I do with the information that they are actually giving me in my interviews and in my um, your yearly uh, reviews and things like that? How do I use this information? And is it really going to benefit me or is it really to my detriment? So I think that's a really good um, place where you're, you know, working with your clients and students to help them understand that. Yeah. Um, When you think about that, what's happening is I will get senior engineers that are minorities Mm -hmm. that have the development of a freshman from a technical standpoint because they usually wait till the end to do an internship. Mm -hmm. 
which means they haven't had that feedback, which means their perception of what the job place is going to be like is inaccurate because they haven't been in it. So now you got what one internship, you're at the end and you're trying to get a job that doesn't make you very marketable. That's a good point. Cause I feel like in law school, I think I maybe had like four or five internships. Like my between my second and third year, I probably had more than that. I know the, the third year I probably had like three or four internships. So it was much easier for me to transition into a legal position um, versus when I graduated from undergrad. I think I might've had one internship. And like, now that you're mentioning it, it was a noticeable difference of how marketable I was at each point in time after graduating from undergrad versus law school. So if you guys are listening to this and you are going to college or getting ready to leave college, internships are important. Um, And if you have kids, make sure that you also encourage them to get internships. Now, when we talk about internships, and this is kind of going a little little away from, from our main topic today, but I think this is so important to talk about paid internships versus unpaid internships. And so how do you get your clients or do you encourage one or the other? And then how do you ultimately get them um, to a paid internship if you do promote paid internships? So all my clients are paid internships. We don't do unpaid over here. <laughs> Good. Um, what I, I actually have a framework in which I teach people how to market their qualities. Mm-hmm. And what does that language look like? At the end of the day, I need people to understand that college is a platform used to accelerate your career. If you get to the end and you're at graduation and you have no job offer, you have no career. Right. Which means you did not use the benefits to your advantage. And when you leave, the things that are um, complimentary to you as a student become thousands of dollars per service. Yeah. So it is. It is not advantageous to walk across the stage without a job offer in hand. Now, when it comes to paid internships, here's what I tell my students and their parents. Your child should not be at home during the summer. I like that. They should be seeking paid internships. So if they cannot get one with a company, they need to then take their resume and go around door to door to the professors in their department and say, hey, I'm available during the summer. Would you be interested in sponsoring me to do an internship in your lab, in your research lab. In exchange for working 40 hours a week, uh, you agree to pay for my housing and my food uh, on campus. Uh, You know, maybe pay me $10 an hour on top of that. And uh, we're good. So Mm. you shouldn't go home. There's no excuse to go home. You're either with a professor or you're with a company, but you're not going home. Yeah. And honestly, guys, if you think about it, paying for, so summer is what, June, July, half of August rent and then a food stipend on campus throughout those two and a half months. It's really not a lot of money. And sometimes I think we might be a little scared of asking that question, like, can I be your paid intern, right? 10, $15 an hour. Can you also cover my housing and my food? It's not a lot of money, especially if the university is going to cover that on behalf of the professor. Like, Honestly, that might be less than $10,000, depending on where you're living and how you're living. So don't be scared to to do exactly that. Go around door to door asking each professor, can I be your intern for the summer, paid intern for the summer? And that's the important part. These professors are busy. So a lot of times they don't have the mental or emotional capacity to go post a job. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't have the money or that they don't need uh, interns or RAs, research assistants. Mm-hmm. It's just they're busy. So just go give you give them the opportunity to hire you. Right. That's what you're doing. You're giving them the opportunity to hire you. Yeah. And it's going to make such a big difference because it's something that you can put on your resume. And, and of course, you're more marketable. So then you do have the opportunity to graduate college with a paid job, which will just save you so much of a headache, guys. I, I did not personally graduate with a paid job. I did end up getting one. But when you graduate, it's like everything makes so much more sense because you know the next thing that you're going to do. Like, I know I'm going to start working at this company a week or two weeks after graduation or a month after graduation. And you just, the stress is not there and you know where you're going from there. So since we're talking about graduating from college, let's back up a little bit. Um, One thing that I really want to talk to you about today is negotiating the tuition bill of college. I did not know this was a thing. And you have a lot of popular topics that you discuss um, from manufactured success to financing, uh, to finessing internships and even imposter syndrome. But this is a topic that just blew my mind when I thought about it, like, you can do this. So where would a student even start when it comes to negotiating tuition with the college? Um, I'm going to say making sure the college is a good fit. A lot of students will um, choose a college based on their reputation. Like my favorite is when I hear students say, I want to go to Harvard. I want to go to Yale. Cool. Um, Newsflash. Those colleges are brands. Mm -hmm. More specifically, they're named after people. Yeah. So if you have a last name and you're valuing going to like Harvard or Yale, you're basically transpiring and telling people, I value being accepted by this family more than my own. So what I want you to realize is one, these colleges are brands. They're named after people, mm-hmm. just like Jordan is a brand. Versace, Chanel, Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein. Those are all names and they're all brands. Yeah. So when you're doing my model, you're a business interfacing with the other business, which means your name is now a brand. Move accordingly. And when you're partnering with another brand, they do not want to be associated with people who taint their brand. Mm-hmm. So, as a student, you must A, make sure it's a good fit and that you're not basing off of rankings. Most of these rankings are uh, based on research. So, if yeah. you're not a grad student, you're not trying to go to graduate school at that institution, that's probably not your most um, reflective resource as far as is this institution going to be feed my needs. Mm-hmm. So, making sure it's a good fit. Then once you make sure it's a good fit, you need to demonstrate interest. You demonstrate interest by attending some of their information sessions. If you can, go to do a visit on campus. Make Mm -hmm. sure you're understanding what the criteria is for admission. Um, Make sure you're understanding what the sticker price is, Mm -hmm. the full sticker price, not just the first year. And then making sure you're understanding uh, your department and that graduation requirements for that particular degree. And you do that by emailing and interfacing with these people and tracking that information. A lot of people don't realize that um, just like Google and Facebook are having all these trackers, the universities are now hiring companies to do the same thing. They're putting trackers in your email. They can see when you're opening it. Wow. They're tracking. A lot of the universities um, are now tracking all this information to gauge 
what are how interested you are mm -hmm. right so if you only offered one out of 16 emails okay you didn't come to any information sessions you've never been to campus but now you're telling me you want to come here i don't know if i believe that <laughs> right it's like dating you got to show me interest yeah. regular interest on our own court a reoccurring basis for me to believe you're genuinely interested yeah. same thing with colleges and universities show your interest once you've shown your interest and you have your financial aid award if it doesn't cover everything and you have another offer send them an email say something like hey uh michael uh your university is my top choice uh however with the given the financial aid award and the low level of scholarships that i received uh i'm concerned that i won't be able to attend your university however i got this other offer from yale that covers tuition for the full year would you be able to match it and here i've attached it for your convenience nice. and it has to come from the student so a lot of parents think oh i'm gonna just do it on behalf of my child absolutely not and then if you can show up in person and re-demonstrate that interest even better it needs to be the student, not the parent. No one wants to hear from the parent. They want to see that your student is genuinely interested and committed. The university, their reputation is based on their graduates. So if you don't have a successful career, no one cares that you graduated. They have nothing to brag about. Case in point, Harvard. Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard before his junior year. Go to Harvard and see how much they brag about him because he had a successful career. Mm -hmm. Institutions want you to demonstrate interest and that you're going to have a successful career. Tell them how you're going to use their resources to accelerate your career. Tell them how you're going to use their network to accelerate your career. Tell them how you're going to use that general information provided by the professors to collectively organize all those professors and that various information to get what you want, which is a successful career. I love that. I love all that because your your interest is so important. But one thing that, that really stuck out just now is it has to come from the students. And I know sometimes parents are really pushing like, oh, I want you to go my, to go to my alma mater. Or I want you to go to this specific school. But again, a lot of schools are brands, like you said. So really showing interest is also a part of you saying, I'm an adult and I can also articulate my interest in this university as well as, you know, like you said, how my career is going to benefit this university. If it comes from your mom or your dad or your grandma, or your cousin, whoever, not the same vibe, guys, not the same vibe. And I used to think, um, you know, when I was getting ready for college, I'd be so annoyed because I'm like, mom, why, why didn't you send off my blah, blah, blah? And she's like, no, ma'am, this is, you want to go to college. This is your job. And my dad would be in the background backing her up like, yeah, you said you wanted to go do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, y'all are really going to make me be an adult, but it makes such a big difference because now I have to stand 10 toes down, right? And be like, yeah, I really do want to go to this college. And I really do want to have a career of XYZ. So it's really important that you guys make sure that whether it's you or your child, that they are the ones showing the interest. Um, now, as, as we're showing our interest and we're discussing or negotiating financial aid with universities, when is a good time to even have this conversation with the university? Like, do we wait until we get acceptance letters or do we wait until the semester starts? Um, I would say wait until you get the acceptance letter. Um, here's why. Uh, I applied for 31 schools and got into 30. Wow. Um, got scholarships from all of them. I had um, 
during my undergrad, actually during all of my college career, I amassed 1.5 million, well, actually over 1.5 million. I think it was like almost 2 million in scholarships. Oof. So here's the deal. I can only attend one of those schools in the same time frame. Right. Which means all those other schools will release that money and it's back in the pool for scholarship for redistribution. So there's the first round, whoever doesn't accept, there's this second pot of money. After you get your financial aid award, oh, ask for more money. They have a second pot. They just don't advertise that, but it has to make sense. If you, even if you only apply to five schools for your undergrad, during that same time period, you can only attend one. So those other four schools are going to release that money that they would have given you in scholarships, and they're going to have it in the back burner to give it to other people to increase the chances of them coming to their institution. Nice. Okay. And this is this is clearly not something that they advertise. So definitely keep that information in your back pocket. Now, when uh, even when students are are asking for more money. Have you seen in your experience where you're working with clients or, or your personal experience, because you had a lot of scholarships offered to you, um, how much have you seen financial aid increase maybe on average, or how much have you uh, seen tuition decrease based on uh, negotiations? Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure about percentage wise, hmm. but all of my clients, have had everything paid. So they end up with with essentially a full ride. So um, here's the deal. They don't get a full ride, but what they do is they get every year covered. Okay. So I want to differentiate the two. A full ride usually implies that you don't have to do the work after that one time you apply, you got the four years covered. Mm -hmm. Um, What me and my clients do is we work together over time to make sure that every year has enough scholarships to cover the bill and the cost of living. Gotcha. Okay. Nice. So, so that's that's what I did in my personal as well. Scholarships, I treated it like a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what I want to bring to everyone's attention. A lot of students don't like to apply for $500 scholarships because they're like, $500 is not a lot, right? Let's treat this like a job. If it took you two hours to complete the scholarship application, you won it. It was $500. You effectively made $250 an hour. It's a lot of money. How many of those before you've amassed enough to cover your tuition? Yeah. Now, the bigger national scholarships, which I got two of those, those take a lot more time. Mm-hmm. And so your return on your investment's a lot lower. Mm. I think for the Microsoft one, I easily put in 80 hours. Wow. It was only 20K. Which 20K, again, this is all relative, right? So 20,000 sounds like a lot of money, but you're putting in 80 hours to potentially win. You, in your case, you actually won, but to potentially win and putting in that amount of time, big difference. Very big difference. Um, so if we're talking about, again, if we're going back and we're treating this like a, a job, right? Because I know for a fact I put in over that amount. You're just under the return on the investment if you would have taken the, a bunch of $500 ones. Right. Okay. Now, I do have to ask, what was your, like, what was the scholarship requirement or the, the uh, project that you had to put together for Microsoft that took 80 hours to do? Um, honestly, it was really refining the application. 
So mm -hmm. when you're dealing with these big national or international scholarships, you have less than 5% chance of getting it. Wow. Versus when I do my local scholarships that were like the little $500, 1000 1500 my chance of getting those was like 60%. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it took a lot less time. I felt mm -hmm. a lot less stress. <laughs> okay, nice. So when it comes to reaching out to financial aid to say, hey, I need more money. Is this something, and you kind of mentioned this before, but is it something that, that students should do in writing and show up in person, or is it like one or the other? Um, preferably both, but that's not always the case. I know um, I did not have the ability to drive to Iowa State. Um, the irony is, okay, so I got my first year covered at Iowa State. Ooh. And the first day I walked on campus, I found out there was four full-time are four um, full ride scholarships that I qualified for. I didn't even know existed. Wow. And I went to the office, every single office. And I was like, yeah, so I'm only a day over. You know, is it possible that I could still get in on the scholarship? They're like, no, you're no longer incoming freshman. You're now a freshman. I'm like, wow. So if I drop out today, can I come back? They're like, no, because you've already attended one. But I'm like, okay, fine. I tried. Oh my gosh. It was still a drop ad, right? Like the first week doesn't right. really count. Whatever. Right. Um, but by doing that, each one of them got me an additional two hundred to two thousand dollar scholarship. Wow. Because I was like, look, here's my situation. Um, I'm trying to make sure that, you know, I can actually stay here and continue to get my degree. Um, so what all of them did is they turned around and was like, look, let me see what I could find you. And so you got from $250 to $2,000 per each for, I, for all four of those. That's not, I, that's not bad. I'm, I'm always like, I, I agree with you. Like a lot of people think, oh, $500 or $250 is not a lot of money. But when you are spending that money and then years later, right, you are trying to pay back that money because it's, it's a loan since you didn't do the scholarship, you're paying back the interest it does add up. Like it's going to make a difference. And even now, uh, my niece and nephews, they're all under the age of 12. They're, they're preteens. Um, but I'm already like, okay, so I found three scholarships for you guys. Um, let's go ahead and get this, get this rolling because the, the, the earlier you start, right, the more money you can get. But I also want them to keep in mind that even if it's just a hundred dollars scholarship here or 250, like you said, it's going to add up. And if it takes you, 30 minutes to, you know, do a little sixth grade project or something, who's made, what, what 11 year old is making a hundred dollars in 30 minutes, right? So if you can find scholarships for, you know, middle school students or high school students, even if they're a small amount, you guys just apply to them anyway, because like Dr. Simone said, you have a higher chance of getting those than some of these bigger ones. Apply for the bigger ones too, but you've definitely got a higher chance. Now, when it comes to getting those, um, either getting the, the additional coverage from financial aid or how you said you got the 250 to the 2000, does this affect students FAFSA or their financial aid they get over time? So that's a funny story. Um, if it's multi-year, yes. However, here's what else I do. There, it took me a really long time to catch on that uh, my scholarships are being sent back. Mm -hmm. So here's what was happening. FAFSA said I only needed 25K. I would amass like 35, 40K in, in scholarships that year. Yeah. They just got sent back. 
I didn't get notified. When I caught on to it, I was like, whoa, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out before you send that scholarship back. Yeah. Um, this, this happened, I think, uh, my junior year in college. I went to the financial aid office for a, a different reason. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're about to send back your blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? What? They have been doing it since freshman year. Yeah. So what happens is once you hit the cap that FAFSA says you need, they, depending on the terms of the scholarship, they may not legally be able to give it to you. Oh. And they can't hold that money there. They're not a bank. Right. They have to send it back. So here's what I did. Out of panicking, I'm like, give me one second. I like opened up my email and I'm scrolling through trying to find somebody's contact. I call up the person who gave me the scholarship and I'm like, ma'am, I'm in a really um, interesting predicament. Is it possible for you to hold the scholarship until next year? Because right now I'm over the cap and they're trying to give it back. And I don't know if I'm going to have next year covered. Mm -hmm. And she goes, no problem. So when I went to fill out my FAFSA for the next year, they didn't know about that money. Oh, wow. So when the year happened, I had already been covered, but I was short like half of the bill of that scholarship. Got you. Okay. So I called her up again and I was like, can you give me half now and half next year? She's like, sure. No problem. Wow. That was it. Strategic. I didn't know you could do that. I was just panicking and I just tried something. Listen, I'm like trying to soak all of this up because I know when my niece and nephew go to college, I'm like, Dr. Simone said. (laughs) <laughs> we should call the people, <laughs> but, but that's really good because I think a lot of times when we do panic, we just kind of get flustered and it's just like, okay, well, the money is gone. There's nothing I can do as opposed to taking a deep breath and really trying to figure out how can I still, how can I still get what is mine, right? You earned that scholarship. It is yours. And yeah, FAFSA is over here making us work for it, but like really being strategic and understanding there are ways to get the money that is yours. And I, I love that you not, not only did you call them back once, but you called them back twice and you were still able to get your expenses covered. That's so, Here's what I want people to realize. Remember, if you do my program, you are a business interacting with another business. It's a business mm-hmm. transaction. That's it. But when you're thinking like a consumer, you don't think you can do anything. You're just like, yeah. I either paid or I'm out. Yeah. Right. You lose it. You lose it. College is one of the few places I've ever been where, like, if you don't get what you were promised, people are like, okay. If I go to the restaurant and I order steak and they bring me out chicken nuggets, I am not paying steak prices. No, absolutely not. But that's what happens in college. Mm-hmm. Students just take it because they haven't yet learned how to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Because they're thinking like a consumer and yeah. not like a business. Wow. If that's we're a thinking really good like. Way to when we're thinking like a business, I can cut this trend. I can cut this business transaction off at any time. And so mm-hmm. can they. And I respect that. Nice. I hope y'all are writing all this down, by the way, because Dr. Simone is like, that's, that's blowing my mind that you can really negotiate a lot of this, but also a, this, this really spills into our actual careers, right? We're not ready or we're not good at advocating for ourselves. So I talk about salary negotiations all the time because we haven't been advocating for so long. We just think it is what it is. I got to take it. So you're offered 
XYZ job, you haven't been advocating while you were in college this whole time. So now you're just like, okay, I make $60,000 now. This is great. But really, you might have left another ten dollars to $20,000 on the table that you could be making. And maybe not coming directly out of school, you might start at $50,000 and get an extra five when you negotiate. But you just always, always advocate for yourself. And this is for college students, post-grad, whoever you are, always advocate for yourself because they're like 85% of the time, there's always some wiggle room. And I don't know where this 85% is coming from, but I feel like there's always someone who's willing to negotiate. So if you start early on with advocating for yourself, when it feels really hard to do the same as an adult, you've already got that practice and that time in. So it makes it a little easier. So are there, aside from tuition, I know tuition is like the big thing and, and you can negotiate that and there's financial aid. Aside from that, though, are there any other fees associated with college that uh, either college itself or the college preparation process that you recommend people negotiate or um, just get rid of altogether? Um, yes, but it kind of ties back to tuition. So okay. there's a lot of general knowledge online that is not necessarily accurate or true. Ooh. My favorite piece of advice that is um, misconstrued would be take, take classes at the community college while you're in high school and do, do account them. Here's why that will backfire in most cases. <laughs> if, and I'm gonna use the example from Carnegie Mellon. So Carnegie Mellon is a private college in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, very well known and I absolutely love it. I've been on their campus. They have a clause that says they will not accept community college classes that were due accounted as high school credit, period. So you just wasted your money. However, on the flip side, public institutions like Iowa State say we will accept all of them, asterisk. Oh. Now, this, this is where the math gets interesting. And I love tracking like the velocity of money. I'm always like, how is this moving? Because this isn't making sense. You're taking an L somewhere or there's something in the background. Mm-hmm there's something in the background. So here's what happens. They will allow you to transfer all 60 of those credits to the university. And then you will invoke something called differential tuition, which is an extra fee anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000 per semester once you hit what they call junior status. Junior status is based on the credits that you have at the institution. So they're going to recoup that loss back. Anyway. Dang. Now, but wait, there's more. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm about to get upset already. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So they're only going to allow you to count 30 of those credits towards graduation. So now you got another 30 credits and you invoked a differential tuition beforehand, which means you still have three years to graduate. Mm-hmm. They got their money back. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets more interesting. Let's pretend that one of the courses you transferred and counted towards graduation was Calc 1. So on the website, it's listed as a four-credit class. When they allowed you to transfer in that credit, they only they counted it as three credits. So yeah, you've satisfied the requirements of calculus. So you no longer have to take Calc 1, but now you're missing a math credit. Yeah. So then you go to the math website and you're just like, oh, I'm just going to take a one credit math class. Surprise, there's no one credit math class. You're taking three credits now. Which 
one three credit courses are more expensive than one credit courses so they're still getting their money their money back wow okay so with that assumption most people assume that they have to finish the associate's degree in order to transfer that is false if you are going to go this route of dual counting credits a make sure the institution allows you to do that b only take the classes that will count directly towards a degree and um c make sure you check to see if there's a cap on the number of transfer credits that you can uh, bring to that institution okay so and and in my hometown dual enrollment is not even just my hometown but just I think in my family in general, I've heard people talking about dual enrollment as well as like my cousin, my little cousin's friends and stuff. It's a big thing. Like a lot of students are doing dual enrollment. Um, I, I did not do dual enrollment. What we had was a little different. Um, we were a magnet program and some of the courses that we took in high school could count toward college credit. So these were, were free, regular classes. They were just advanced classes or whatever. Um, and so you had to take a test and then those credits could be transferred to college. Now, I don't know how they worked out for some other schools, but I know we transferred to some people went to FAMU, some people went to FSU. It worked out fine. Um, but now more people are pushing for the dual enrollment, which is, like you said, a little different. So if you guys are thinking about dual enrollment, interested in dual enrollment, here's what I just got from Dr. Simone. Number one, the college that your child or you want to go to, does it accept credits at all? Number two, is there a cap on how many credits they accept? And number three, if they do accept credits, are there going to be any additional fees or costs, like you said, differential tuition? Is, are, is, is the college going to recoup that money from you in some way, shape, or form from freshman year all the way to senior year, which... In some cases, not only be two years, I guess. And now I'm missing the FAFSA piece. Mm. So FAFSA is what uh, the government is, this calculated number that says what the child is going to be responsible for, what the family is going to contribute, and it gives this um, number, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. If you were one of the people who decided to use some of that FAFSA qualifications towards the community college degree, the government caps you at 160 credits. So after you hit that cap, you're done. You can no longer get any federal loans. You're now relying on private and scholarship money. So to put this in perspective, let's say we do 60 credits at community college. Only 30 of those credits transfer to our college. So we essentially need to make up 30 credits somewhere, right? But between the 60 that we did at community college and then I'm going to say the other hundred we did at college, we're, we're going to cap out. It's it's probably, uh, it's possible that we might cap out before we actually graduate because we did so many credits that did not actually transfer. So they got to be careful about switching majors and taking oh. unnecessary courses. And that's where that comes in. Yeah. Because I know we, um, so we went to FSU. Um, we had quite a few classmates who got to like junior year and they were like, uh, I actually don't want to do this. I'd rather do something else. But they ended up switching their major about two or three times over the course of the five years that they might have been there. But if it's capped at 160 credits, guys, we can only you can only do so much school in 160 credits. So yeah, wow, that's a that's a big asterisk. 
that people yeah, miss. Yeah, that's the one that people miss. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. So, a few other things. Mm-hmm. So, aside from tuition, now that we've kind of gone through that magic here, some other things that people need to be careful of. One of the things that eat people's pockets is choosing the wrong housing and meal plan. Mm-hmm. Here's an example. Uh, my freshman year, I took, uh, I decided to get a meal plan for three meals a day uh, because when I visited campus, the the plethora of options, I was sure I was going to eat more. Okay. I got to the end of the semester and had over 50% of my meal plan left. I went on the website and was like, okay, so they said with this meal plan, each meal is approximately $10. Okay. I got this many left over. I'm going to get like a $3,000 check back. Next semester started, no check. I went into the office and I'm like, so I think the system has an error they were like no ma'am we don't do reimbursement on meals you use it or lose it I'm like wow okay okay I feel it I I was butthurt Mm -hmm. but aside from me making that mistake of not using my meal plans here's the reality I eat like a bird okay Mm -hmm. there was no I've never eaten three meals a day that was an unrealistic um evaluation of my dietary needs yeah furthermore when i did go it was like getting cheesecake and walking out and a lot of times the meals are typically the same throughout the the week so i know when we went you had different like cafes that you could go to but for the most part they were they were cooking food that's good to cook in bulk. So how often are we eating spaghetti and hamburgers and fries and chicken tenders, right? So maybe a meal plan where it's two meals a day versus the three meals a day might work. Furthermore, I also had conflicts with my schedule. Mm-hmm. So the time that the dining center was open mm-hmm. and the time that my classes were done, I could only actually attend only one of those sessions. Oh, wow because ROTC in the morning, and then I had a media class afterwards. Then I had a lab during the lunchtime that the facilities were open, which meant I could only attend dinner. Which just cuts your, your it cuts your meal plan automatically by a third, because, or by two thirds, because you're only making that one meal. Okay, so evaluate those meal plans. And it, honestly, even, even if you have a student, like I had a friend who really enjoyed cooking, So she didn't get a meal plan. She's like, I recognize that some days I might not want to cook, but she really loved it. So she's like, I'm not going to get a meal plan because I, and she did. She cooked the entire time we were in school. So like, like Dr. Simone said, you need to reevaluate your dietary needs. I like that. (laughs) Are there any other um, fees or anything else that you think college students should either negotiate or just not even get in general? I know there are other fees like, uh, I think we had like gym fees, but you couldn't really, I don't think you really get rid of those. Yeah, no, they've made those a requirement at most institutions. So here's what I'll say. Um, the most of the other expensive piece of this equation is housing. So mm-hmm. most students will try to get housing super close to where the classes are as a convenience. The more mm-hmm. convenient it is, the more the higher the price. Yeah. So consider getting a housing location that's on the edge of campus if you want to actually stay in campus housing or if your family can afford it buy a house in town your child's going to be there four years anyway which is actually an underrated idea it is so underrated but but please say more words about buying a house in town 
Yeah. So if you buy a house in town, let's say uh, it's a multi-unit, um, let's pretend you buy a four, four unit apartment building or six unit apartment building. Um, your child would not have to pay rent. And since your child is living there, that would be qualified as a primary, could qualify as a primary residence, which means you could put 3.5% down and the other five units of that six unit building could be paying the mortgage and the reserves just in case something breaks down. And then you hire a property manager, so you're not dealing with anything. And your child still gets to keep that housing. At the end of their education, sell it if you're done. And get your yeah. money back. So all that money you would have spent on housing gets recouped back. And it makes such a big difference. Now, the 3.5%, I think I talked about this on the podcast before. Those are uh, FHA loans. So look into those and use them to your benefit as much as you possibly can. Um, because 3.5% versus... 20% down on a home or, or anything above that is going to make all the difference as well. But it's it's a really good idea. And I think because it sounds like such a big undertaking to purchase a home or a property that's outside of, you know, because most of us are going to school outside of our city, maybe outside of our state. It's a little nerve wracking. But like you said, hire a property manager. Uh, we have a townhome in Florida. I just spoke to my property manager yesterday. We went through all the numbers for 2023. It was great. I didn't do any of that work. So your property manager is going to be very beneficial, especially collecting rent from the other tenants who are likely college students that you're friends with, collecting rent from them and making sure that the property is taken care of. I mean, I, I really wish that was discussed more and maybe we can do another podcast episode where we break that down. But I'm glad you mentioned it because it is something that I want more of us to, to talk about and discuss and actually execute. Absolutely. Um, again, if your budget can afford it, do it. If your budget cannot, I encourage you to look into house hacking, like renting a room from somebody else's house. The idea here is if you're really taking advantage of the college opportunity to accelerate your career, your house is used for sleeping. We're not, we're not hanging out there. You're, you're in the library, you're on campus, you're involved, you're active, you're going to these um, evening events to network with professionals who are both alumni and students who are about to graduate yeah. before you. So you should be involved. There are three main pillars of college that I want you to use to accelerate your child's career. Mm -hmm. The first pillar is the network. Once your child decides what company they want to work for and the position they want, go to the alumni association and say, hey, who do we have from this institution who work there or works there currently? Their job is to stock people, stock all the alumni, <laughs> make sure they know what they're doing. The second one, free resources. There is no other institution that gets as many free and reduced in, uh, resources as a college. Amazon doesn't go to every single college and say, hey, I'm gonna give all your students six months free Amazon Prime and then 50% discount after that. No, they just say, if you have a .edu email, you get this. Mm -hmm. So do all the other companies. Mm -hmm. Ryzen gives 40% off, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these discounts, you just have to ask for them. And then right. the third, general knowledge. There is no other place in the world than a college campus that has the most general knowledge. So it's up to you and your child to organize that knowledge to your benefit. Just because your professor in physics is teaching physics, it doesn't mean he doesn't know real estate. Right. Doesn't mean he doesn't know about investing in stocks. Doesn't mean he doesn't have connections at the company you're trying to get an internship at. Mm -hmm. Use that knowledge you are paying for access to these people. Office hours are not restricted to just classwork. Yeah. And let's be real. And they would like somebody to come talk to them. 
at least use the office hours that they are putting out there. I, I would go to office hours and professors would be shocked, like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, it's your office. Like they would genuinely forget that, that they even had an office hour. Like it's your time to talk to your students. So I'm here. But yeah, office hours are actually really, really beneficial. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been like procrastinating until the, the 1 a.m. hour and I go to office hours and the professor says one thing. I'm like, that makes so much sense. I have 30 minutes to go finish this project. I'll see you in class. Like you, you really should, and don't procrastinate like that, but you really should go to office hours and encourage your student or child to go to office hours. And that was something that my, my parents instilled in us. They were like, you need to be sitting front row and you need to be in office hours. And it made a world of difference in law school. So absolutely use those office hours because like you said, you have access to these professors. Another big thing is when it comes to letters of recommendation, who do you think is gonna you know, provide your letter of recommendation? So when you use those office hours, your professor knows your name and knows your face. And now they can, most, like, most professors are gonna say, you write the recommendation letters, I'll review it and sign it. Like that's how it went down when, when I was in school, which was, which was easy. Um, it was hard to talk about myself, but easy to do. And they didn't have the time to do it. So that worked out great. You have some professors who say, yeah, I know you well enough that I'm going to, you know, write all the things and the projects we've done together. That's great. But if you're not connecting with your professors, how are you getting those recommendation letters? It's very important. So please use office hours. It's very important. Now, um, so we've talked a lot about negotiating, financial aid, tuition, fees, all that good stuff. I want to know, Dr. Simone, what is the process to work with you? How does that look? And do people just come to you and say, listen, I'm going to college, I need help. Or is it more streamlined with like focused goals that you guys work on? Um, so I, when my clients are working with me, we build all of that up. I actually make them come up with core values because that's going to determine how we navigate, right? So here's an example. One of my core values is family. How I measure that, I don't do overtime. I will not accept a job offer from any company that does overtime. Nice. Because I value my family, which means I need to be available to spend time with them and do things. Um, in general, working with me, I typically only stick with the students who want to get into tech careers. Um, and that's because I cannot, I can help them develop both their their college navigating their college decisions and navigating the career decisions to ensure that they get that six-figure job offer before graduation. So I got my first six-figure job offer from Microsoft uh, before my, my last year. And then just since then, I've just been getting tons and tons of six-figure offers. So from my Microsoft experience, I still stay in contact with my boss. He, he was amazing. I went back a few years ago and I had just did an interview with him to understand, why did you give me that offer? From that experience, I then reverse engineered the stuff that I did and mm -hmm. created an entire program around that. Wow. And that is how I've been helping all these interns really transition seamlessly into these mm -hmm. internships and the full-time offers. Nice. Okay. So if you guys are interested in tech, if you have a student who's interested in tech, Dr. Simone is the person to see. Um, I just want to thank you so much for all your insight and knowledge today because 
I do not know some of this stuff. Um, so I'm sure that this has probably helped me as well as some other people in the Black Girl Budget community. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing your experiences as well as your expertise. Before I let you go, though, I do want to know, how can we get more insight and more knowledge moving forward from Dr. Simone? Um, do you have anything coming up in the next couple of months in 2023 that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, uh, a few things. So one, uh, my book, which has a lot of this content in it, it's called Manufactured Education, uh, the ultimate guide to getting your bachelor's degree without selling your soul. Okay. So that is coming out and you're definitely going to want to look out for that. There's some checklists in there about little nuances and little fees that can kind of get you. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really to remind people that one mistake in college could be a multi-thousand dollar mistake. How many of those before you're at 30K? Yeah. So the other thing is I do do speaking events. So if you're interested in having me come to a speaking event, what you need to do is reach out to your superintendent and your child's school district and have them bring me in to do a talk at your, your child's high school. Nice. That is a way to get me in to do some speaking events and getting your child that exposure and having the school district. Um, I love it. Put the bill. Okay. Do you, I, I don't know if you can even tell us this. Do you have a specific date or month when the book is dropping? Yes. The book is dropping the first week of May. Perfect. Okay. Um, so I haven't decided which day I wanted it yet, but yeah. Okay. We'll be on the lookout. And once the book drops, if you want to come back on the podcast and maybe talk a little bit more about it, that's perfectly fine. And you guys, uh, Dr. Simone has really good information. So again, if you wanted to do a workshop, get in touch with that superintendent or get in touch with your teacher, uh, your principal at your student school, have them get in touch with the superintendent and make sure you guys have her come out because this is a lot of really good information. And I think college can be very scary and we can be intimidated because there's so many things you have to do. A lot of it, if not all of it is online now. So really getting into college and using college to your benefit and not just like a four year educational vacation is a very important. So Dr. Simone, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to the book and I look forward to bringing you back so we can talk some more about how we can use college to our benefit. Absolutely, I look forward. Thank you.